Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, all my life I, I heard uh, the words Chaye Sarah. Uh, by the way, my mother's name was Sarah Chaya. She was born around this time. I always wondered if there was a connection. But anyway, Chaye Sarah um, is, it's funny because it's, it's, it's in the language of life. Chai means life. So, so it's usually translated as the life of Sarah. Uh, interestingly, though, it's it's really about her her passing. That that it's all about how she left the world. Um, so, so that's striking. But um, I, I want to go further into this actual translation, a little bit more of a literal translation, or perhaps an accurate translation of what the words Chai Sara means. Because, like I said, it's usually translated as the life of Sara, um, which is actually incorrect. And there's a very big difference. It might sound like a small change, but it's a, it's a giant change. It actually means the lives of Sarah. It's, it's plural, the lives of Sarah. And, and so with that in mind, obviously we all know that, that the, part of the miraculous divine nature of the Torah is whatever's going on in the Torah is going on in our lives and is going on in the world. So, so given that, the question is, what, what, do, what does that have to do with us? the fact that it means the lives of Sarah. So I would like to suggest that all of us are living many lives simultaneously. Um, we have our family life. We have our, our professional life. We have our interior life, just that realm between our ears that no one's really privy to except, except God. Um, you know, what we do recreationally in our off time or hobbies and things like that. So there's, there's a lot of lives that we're living simultaneously. And the question is, how can we go about living our lives in such a way where the different parts of our life are not sabotaging the other parts of our life? Um, there's an example that, that people give. It's not a, a, a common expression, but I think maybe at one point it was called, um, uh, what is it? Like, oh, sorry, crabs in a barrel, like crabs in a barrel. So what does that mean? So if you put, apparently, I've never seen this, but it's an old saying. If you put a lot of crabs in a barrel, they start to climb out. Um, but the 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 uh, crabs toward the bottom will grab a crab toward the, the leg of the crab toward the top and pull them back down. So here you see the concept of sabotage. And so how can we live our lives? Like we said that Chai Sara means the lives of Sara. How can we be living our many lives in such a way where we're not sabotaging ourselves? And so what I would suggest is that the Torah itself gives us a way to go about living many lives in, in consonance with each other so that what we, what we don't get is self-sabotage and what we do get is synergy. And I would say one thing, um, we were talking about it a little bit yesterday, but I, 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 think, it's a, I think it's an important point to get out there. I read from Rabbi Simcha Weinberg many years ago. He wrote an article and he said that anyone who becomes a Baal Tshuva, meaning to say anyone who's interested, especially 
you know, later on in life, taking on things like Shabbos and, and, the, and the Torah mitzvahs, which obviously is a, is a great, redemptive, amazing thing to do for yourself and the whole world, <clears throat> should see a psychologist. So, <laughs> so that, it sounds like, it sounds a little funny. I think he deliberately sort of said it in that way to make it sound funny. You, you might think he's saying anyone who's thinking about this is nuts and should see a psychologist. Obviously, that's not what he meant. So what did he mean? He meant that, um, again, with this idea that we're all sort of leading many lives, when, when a person goes about and, and says, okay, I'm going to keep Shabbos, or I'm going to try to keep Shabbos, or I'm going to keep a little bit of Shabbos, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to start keeping kosher, or something like that, or try to eliminate, say, some of the foods that, that, that ideally we're not eating, things like that. You're taking steps toward it anyway. What they're beginning to do is a bit of an upheaval in their life. And anytime you sort of like, you know, create the agency for upheaval in your life, you're creating simultaneously a, a just a font, a font of turmoil. <laughs> and, and potentially, you're really creating a place where all the crabs are, so to speak, riled up and really just tugging at each other. Yeah, so, so that process of reprioritizing what's most important to you is not something that is necessarily intuitive. Like, for instance, if you like, hurt one foot, you'll naturally start limping. Sort of the God programmed the body in such a way that you'll start putting more weight on the other foot. But that type of rebalancing isn't necessarily intuitive when it comes to this complex matrix of priorities. And because you say, okay, well, I'll just put this here. Aha, but that triggers a domino effect this way. Well, I'll just do that, that, but what about this domino effect? I know something that a lot of people... um, deal with, especially people who start to want to keep Shabbos and things like that in their early 20s after college, is what happens when I get invited to my good friend's wedding in the middle of nowhere, which is going to be on a Saturday? And you, this is something I've heard from many, many people. It's sort of like, I, I literally can't go to my friend's wedding and keep Shabbos or keep Shabbos, or as far as I know, keep Shabbos, at least as I've been keeping it. So, so I'm just bringing that up because it's sort of like, you know, a close friendship, especially a close college friendship and things like that. It's very emotional situation. And, and for the other person, too, for the person who's getting married, it's very emotional. And of course, they want you there. So and I'm not saying that you can't balance it out so that you can't go. I'm not saying that. But a lot of times the solutions aren't easy or automatic. And I'm just giving that as one case in point of where... This process of reprioritizing is something that, that you usually or often can get a great deal of help from, from someone else, like a psychologist from. So that's, um, that's something I'm just throwing out there. Uh, so the Torah itself is so awesome because the Torah is a unified vision for getting through life. And... I'll just share the story with you. It happened to me on Friday, so I guess the day before yesterday. And there's a reason why I'm telling you this story. It's not even for the story itself, which is nice enough, I guess, but it's for just something that kind of came out of my mouth during the story. 
So, so what happened was I was kind of driving, you know, driving actually to learn at the, at the, at the Kolel in the morning. It's Friday morning before work. And I actually took a different way, which is interesting because on this different way that I took, I, I glimpsed something from like the corner of my eye as I drove by it. And as I'm driving, just in the moments as I'm driving, I said to myself, that looks like a wallet. And I, I thought to myself, well, wait a second. You know, I don't think, I think if you see a lost object of someone, you, you have to stop and return it. I don't think you can just drive on. And so I was, you know, all these thoughts were going through my mind very, very quickly. And I was thinking, like, you, you have to pull over. <laughs> you know, by the way, I think that mitzvah of returning a lost object is with another mitzvah. And I just bring this up because they're sort of kind of jumbled in my mind. But if you pass by someone who's sort of like loading their donkey, I think that's the, the, the case they give in the Torah. And it's sort of like a lot of bundles because remember your, your donkey back in the day was kind of like a, a station wagon or a pickup truck or something like that. So you're, you're trying to load all of these things and, and it's your enemy, says the Torah. You have to help them. And then they give this great example. What if your friend is actually loading up a lot of things and he needs your help? And next to him is your enemy who's loading up a lot of things. Who do you help first? And the answer is your enemy. You have to help your enemy first. And then the answer is a great answer. Why? Because it's harder to do. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Because it's harder to do. See, one of the things that um, just is almost diametrically opposed, just the opposite of the way people grow up in America, at least, I'm just speaking for myself, is that people think that um, the highest possible thing that you can do is something that comes from the goodness of your heart. Like, in other words, if I, you know why I'm doing this? Not because anyone told me to do it, because I want to do it. So you feel we've been sort of trained to feel as though this is the highest expression of, of service or giving. But the Torah says absolutely 100% the opposite. The Torah says that it's a bigger mitzvah to be commanded to do something. And why? You ready? Because it's harder to do. <laughs> Very interesting. If you imagine it just on a more sort of metaphysical level, what is bringing more light from your soul into the world? Like when you have to sort of, so to speak, break out, like you have to like really work to get that light out there as opposed to, I want to do this. Of course I want to do this. The door is already open. And by the way, it's, it's, it's beautiful to want to do something. We're, we're supposed to get to the level where we're serving God from this place of love. Right? So, so ideally, that's, that is an idealized place. I'm not minimizing it at all. Please don't misunderstand me. However, when you just compare the two together, where the door is already open or whether you have to pry open up the door, the act of prying open up an otherwise previously closed door brings more light into the world. Hopefully that's understandable. But it also shows you that, you know, the... The, the, the act of serving God in, 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 in Torah literature is called avodas Hashem. That's what it's called, avodas Hashem. Now, interestingly, avoda means work. 
It means work. So there's a sense that you're, you're actually ap- applying effort, real, real effort. And, th- and then in that effort, as it says in Perke Avos, to the effort goes the reward. In other words, if you want to know how much reward you're receiving for a certain act, how much effort went into it? And you'll get, says the rabbis of the, the Talmud, a sense of what, what the reward is. So, so we shouldn't minimize something or say that it's unnatural or perhaps even wrong because it's hard to do or because it doesn't come naturally. Because our nature, remember, what is our nature? Our nature is that we've got a piece of God within us. And that's sort of like, how would you, like, just to give you a crazy visual, let's say you have like a a mouse hole, right, in your house. And behind that mouse hole is an elephant. (laughs) How do you get the elephant out of the mouse hole? (laughs) Well, there's only one way to do it. By making the mouse hole substantially larger. (laughs) Okay, so, so to speak, lahavdil, right? We have this giant thing inside of us, this piece of God, this soul of ours. How do we get that through our body, which is very, very small? Well, by making, by making our body, the, 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 the opening to our heart, larger and larger and larger and larger. But obviously that, that requires work. But that's the, that's the whole process of redemption. That's, that's what the world is in the process of doing. Just making the portals of the light that's already there larger and larger so that all the light that's already there can shine. Remember, and we say this again and again, but this is such a fundamental thought. God is as present in this dimension that we're in right now as he is in the higher spheres. He's just more concealed. I'll say it again. It's very important that everybody knows this. God is as present in this world, as he is in the highest reaches of heaven, he's just more concealed. So we have to, it's not a question of bringing God here. It's really just a question of revealing God's oneness. That's what we're trying to do. Okay? So, so back to the story. I'm driving, I'm driving and I'm like, see that little thing that may be a wallet. I wasn't sure. And then, you know, when I, I pull over to the side of the road, which was only like, I don't know, a few yards from where it was, but, you know, my mind was racing, you know, from the moment I saw it. I got out and I walked up and I picked it up and it was like this really nice leather case and I opened it up and there's someone's iPhone in it, like a new iPhone and all of the ID. And I, I was so happy, not, not for the person who lost it, but I was... So happy because I never get a chance to do this mitzvah. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, I've got something someone really wants, and it's in my hand, and I get to return it. And I was thinking, okay, well, you know, I've heard stories like this. People have to drive to the valley, or they have to drive who knows where to return the, the thing. And I'm looking, and I see the person's address. He's 76 years old, and... Um, and, uh, and, but there's no phone number. 
And my wife told me, had you called his phone, it would have rung in your hands. <laughs> you didn't have his phone, so that probably wouldn't have been very helpful. But for whatever reason, I'm looking for his phone number and his address, by the way. So, I, and I, I found it pretty quickly, actually. There was his address, and I was standing right in front of his house, which was great, great for me. You know what I mean? It's like, so, I mean, he literally dropped it. I don't know how he dropped it, but he dropped it as he was, I guess, getting into his car or something like this. So I just walk a few steps to his house, and he's got a, a brand new Porsche in his driveway, right? And I figure, okay, the car's in the driveway, this is all good, he's home. So I ring the bell, and you know when you ring someone's doorbell, you can hear it ring inside the house? So I couldn't hear anything. Now I know from my own doorbell, that means the doorbell's broken. <laughs> so, so I'm like, okay, well, the doorbell seems to be broken. So I'm knocking, and no one's coming, and you know, it's pretty early in the morning. It's maybe, I don't know, maybe 8 a.m., maybe a little earlier. I'm knocking, 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 nothing. I'm ringing, ringing, nothing. And I'm thinking, ah, uh, I don't think anybody's home. Then I thought, you know what, maybe I'll just go to my office because I really want to hand it to the guy. Maybe I'll just go to my office, which isn't so far. It's like five minutes from here, and I'll try him later on in the day. And I figured, well, let me just give it a few more knocks. So I'm knocking some more, nothing, and I go, okay, whatever it is, he's not here. So then I turn and I start walking toward my car and I see a 76-year-old man walking toward his house. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, can't believe it, there he is. And I said his name. And by the way, he looked great. He looked like he was like 55, you know, he looked, honestly, he looked like in great shape, you know, with a big smile on his face. And I, I, I said his name and he looks at me like, like, who are you? Exactly. I don't know who you are and what are you doing like, in my house, basically. So I pull out his phone, his wallet, you know, and I, I, I said, I said, this is yours. And, and he, his face lights up. And then what was really funny to me was that he gives me a fist bump. <laughs> and then over the course of the next like three minutes, it was quick between us, but he fist bumped me three different times. You know, so he gives me, so he, he, was, he was really happy. And, uh, and then he, I said to him, I said, you know, you, I said, you're lucky because someone could have run over the run over this and, you know, destroyed it. And he said, I, did I mention this already? He said, I was just coming back to the house to get this, to get it. You know, I said, well, you know, it was in the middle of the street. And, you know, he, what, once, and he, here's kind of what I wanted to tell you. This just kind of came out of my mouth, right? Because I wasn't planning on saying this at all. I said, I said, the Torah makes you better. You know, like, and I was talking about myself, like, because, you know, I think I could definitely picture just saying, was that a wallet? It may have been. And <laughs> you just hit the gas and you keep on going. <laughs> maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Not my business. Or, oh, someone will get it. Right? Or maybe getting out of the car and actually bringing it, but maybe not going over all the mitzvahs of the Torah that are involved, right? There's, this was just the best, I, 
at least from my limited standpoint, the best version of this story took place. And the best version of this story took place only because of the Torah. You know? And, and then I also noticed, just as a side point, was this, was this is a, I would say, a religious neighborhood. Not every single house, but, you know, it's a pretty religious area. And he has a Jewish last name. And I don't think that I saw a mezuzah in his door. So, you know, it's just kind of a basic level of observance, even if you're not that religious. You know, you usually have a mezuzah on your front door. So I thought to myself, okay, that's, you know, interesting. He's living in this pretty religious area. Doesn't even, he's a Jewish guy, older guy, doesn't even have a mezuzah on his door. What's his relationship like with his neighbors? Maybe it's friendly, maybe it's Maybe there are issues. I don't know. But, you know, you just kind of read between the lines. So I was, so I was very happy that he saw that I was, you know, wearing a yarmulke. And that he saw that this was being done for him. And I, I said to him, I just, you know, he said to me, do you live in the area? And I said, no. Because I don't. And his face lit up even more. You know, and you know, I turned around, and he turned around with me, and I know he saw that I was wearing a yarmulke, and I got in my car, and that was it. And my my son, I told my son the story. He said, "Did you tell him your name?" And I was like, "No, like, why would I tell him my name? Like, like what? What's the point of that? Like, that, that so wasn't that? It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't relevant to anything. It was just like, you know." Like, this is just what we do. So, so again, let's go back to the point. It says, Chaye Sora, which, which one would read as the life of Sora. That's usually how it's translated. But the, it actually means the lives of Sora. Because we're all living many lives simultaneously. And how are, how are we, how can we ensure that all of these different aspects of ourselves are working together so that there's a synergy, so that there's a greater outcome as opposed to each one of ourselves sabotaging the other. And the answer, I think, again, is, is the Torah. The Torah is a vision of oneness. Remember, God is one, and we say that the Torah is God's mind to, to the extent that we can grasp it, right? to the extent that part of God's mind has been revealed, right? So in other words, and, and, and Kabbalistically, we even say that the Torah and God are one. So don't misinterpret that. God is not a book, right? Even if you think in the most exalted level that the, that of the letters being these heavenly components, there's not a one-to-one correspondence between that and God. God is beyond that. But so to speak, this is the mind of God, right? We don't want to do any sort of um, phraseology or visualization that limits God because God is beyond, 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 beyond. Nothing limits God. But so to speak, to the extent that we can say that we can peek into God's mind and that God has expressed himself to us, this is through the mitzvahs. And again, I think it's very important to emphasize that the mitzvahs, when we say that the Torah is God's mind, it's a, it's a call to action. 
It's a call to action. It's not just sort of like, well, let me read your resume, and then I'll have a sense of who you are. So let me just read the Torah, and I'll have a sense of who you are, God. That's not what it is. It's, it's much deeper than that. It's God says, this is who I am and what I want you to do. That's, that's a whole nother, it's a whole nother idea. And remember, we say that the name of this realm, so to speak, if you were to look at a map of all the worlds, what's the name of this world that we live in? It's called Olamasia, which means the world of action. Because we're here to do something, not just to know something, but to do something. So, so, so when we do these things, when we do the mitzvahs of the Torah, remember we're saying that that God is one, and that the Torah is an expression, a blueprint of his oneness, or an aspect of it, as, at least as far as we can grasp it. If we want to unify all the different aspects of our life, we can achieve that oneness by, so to speak, copying God's oneness, which he reveals to the extent that he does to us in the Torah. So God is one, the Torah is one, and we say Israel is one, because when Israel does the mitzvahs of the Torah, we align ourselves with God's oneness, and all three become sort of like worlds within worlds within worlds. That, that's how we do it. That's how we do it. We keep the Torah. Now, with that in mind, I want to apply it to mezuzahs, which might be a surprising connection, but you'll see where I'm going with this. See, the, the nature of people is to rationalize and compartmentalize. So, so I'll give you like the worst example of, of compartmentalizing, okay? Which is one of the most fascinating areas of the Talmud that, that, that I've seen is that, you know, remember, the, the Talmud itself, just to appreciate the Talmud itself for a moment, it was edited. I'm not talking about written. I'm talking about edited. And, and there was some writing going on in it as well, but read, edited over a period of 500 years. <laughs> Can you imagine a book that took 500 years to edit? I mean, and so, so anyway... So during the period of the, the Talmud being written and edited, it was during the, the, the classic era of the Greek philosophers. So the rabbis, they record in the Talmud certain get-togethers that the rabbis would have with Greek philosophers. It's interesting. Like in Athens. It's interesting, isn't it? And they would debate certain things. Like, well, here's, how, here's the Jewish point of view. And they, they would tell us what their point of view was. And these things are recorded. And during one of these sessions, they were serving a meal. And during the meal, two of the philosophers got into a fight, and one murdered the other philosopher. This was at the gathering. And the rabbis were, like, outraged. They said, you, moments ago, like, you were just philosophizing. Like, how could you sink to this level where you just murdered a guy? And he said, they answered back, um, I'm a philosopher when I'm philosophizing. 
Right now, I'm not philosophizing. Right now, I'm eating and drinking. So that would be an example of compartmentalizing. You have very rarefied knowledge in your mind, but that's for certain people, certain places. This is who I am when I'm with other people in other places. So that undermines this aspect of oneness. Right? Remember, God is one. And we want to figure out how we can live a life where all the different parts of our personality are working together and that we can, we can be the most ideal form of ourselves in all of the situations that we're in. Okay. By the way, that's why it's one of the reasons why there's so many different halachas, why there's so many different mitzvahs. Because the idea is that the Torah itself is trying to corral us into one place. Because the Torah knows that when I'm in a different situation, a new side of me is empowered and wants to run in every new direction. <laughs> so where is the, how can, how can I be instructed and, 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 you know, elevated in those new areas where I'm just running wild and I think there is no guidance? Well, so then the Torah goes, hey, you know what? You're in luck. We've got ways that you behave in this situation, and in this situation, and in this situation. And guess what? In every situation. <laughs> Which, when you first start to learn Torah, you go, are they crazy? <laughs> what are you doing to me? What are you trying to do to me? But then when you realize the brilliance, the genius, the divinity behind it, that of course there's instruction for every area of my life. Of course there is, because I live within God. And God is absolutely everywhere. So the proper way to act must be everywhere and in everything. That's why, like, you know, when I first started learning Torah, before I was observant, one of the most meaningful things that I ever learned was that there was a Torah way to put on your shoes and socks. And the reason why I loved that was because I was like, there's even a Torah way to put on your shoes and socks. So this must be from God, right? Like, who would, have, who would have designed a system that addressed such a small, seemingly meaningless detail? And, and just in case you don't know, it's right sock, left sock, right shoe, left shoe, then it switches around, then you tie your left shoe, then you tie your right shoe. And I know I've shared this before, but there, there are many explanations for it. And some people might like this explanation, other people don't like this explanation, but I loved this explanation, which was why would you, what if you put your, if you put your right sock on and then your right shoe on first, your left foot will feel bad. <laughs> I thought, you mean there's a religion that cares about how my left foot feels? <laughs> that has to be from God. So, also, if you, if you think of it as choreography. Yeah, well, that's, that's, choreography is a beautiful word, word and, 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 and I think when I hear the word choreography, I think of the word harmony. Because, again, I heard this, I think, from Rabbi uh, David Aaron, this phrase, the, the idea that the Torah is putting you in harmony with yourself 
and the universe. And I, I like that because each person is a microcosm of the universe. So each person has the whole world inside them. So when you sort of clarify and unify yourself, you also are having an impact on, all the, on the whole world, even if you can't see it, because the world is inside you at the same time. It's all levels. Um, so getting back to mezuzahs, what does this have to do with mezuzahs? So a mezuzah, as everybody knows, is a rolled little miniature scroll with um, some Torah writing in it that you put over your doorposts. And you put it on all the doorposts of your house and your gates, except your bathroom and small closets. Very big closets, if you can walk into it, if it's like a room, some people have very big closets, that you would put a mezuzah on. But for the most part, closets and bathrooms you don't. Everything else, yes. Particularly your front door, kitchen, bedroom, you know. So, so the question is, what does this have to do with, with Chai Sara, living different lives? and trying to unify them. So what, what is written on the mezuzah? That's the question. Usually it's rolled up and it's in a case, so we can't see what's written. What is in there exactly? So the answer is very clear. The Shema. Shema Yisrael, Shema Lokeno, Shema Chad, which means God is one. Aha! We're back to the idea of oneness again. So who am I in my bedroom? Who am I in my kitchen? Who am I inside my house, and who am I outside my house? That can be four different people. <laughs> that can be four different people. So, so the, the idea is that every time you're passing by a mezuzah, from, from one category of your life to another category of your life, from, let's say, who I am inside my house, to who I am outside my house. And for some people, by the way, it's who I am outside my house to who I am inside my house. There are a lot of people who are very nice to everybody outside their house, and as soon as they get into their house, ah, where's the dog so I can kick it, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's not so simple. Inside, outside, outside, inside. You have to, but, but there's a reminder as you're leaving these boundaries, right, or like almost like the borders to a country, you're like leaving one country and you're going to another country. There's a reminder, God is one. And I have to be one too, right? My oneness has to parallel his oneness. So whatever I prize most dearly in this environment, I have to now bring to the next environment. That's, that's the idea or one of the messages of a mezuzah, a reminder, a reminder not to be schizophrenic, right? Or, or to undermine myself. And, and pulling those pieces together is not something that just happens overnight. It's a, it's a process. And for many people, it's a lifelong process, right? Especially when you're associating with not-so-nice people, you know? So it's a real, it's a real sort of like motivation to have good friends, 
See, because if you have friends who are like, you know, Reb Shlomo used to use this phrase that I always used to like, like if you're hanging around negative people, let's say you want to just increase in, say, some aspect of serving God. And your friends are like, ah, oh, come on, give me a break, whatever it is. Reb Shlomo would use a phrase that they're clipping your wings. I always like that phrase, clipping your wings. You don't want to be around people who are clipping your wings. You know? You don't want to be around people who are, like, basically strengthening that side of you, which is a contradiction to the best parts of you. So Reb Shlomo, in one of his more memorable, I mean, there were thousands of them, but one of his more memorable, more quotable, well, there are thousands of those too, but more quotable phrases, in my mind anyway, is he said, what's the definition of a good friend? A good friend is someone who uh, makes you want to be a better person. He says, what's the definition of a best friend? Someone who, you, when you're with them, you're already a better person. <laughs> you know? So we need best friends. We need best friends. People who, when we're around, we're already better. You know? Because... You know, as, as Rabbi Green once said, you have to love every Jew, but some you can love from afar. It's, it's a very important teaching. You know? Doesn't mean I don't love you. I'm just loving you from here. <laughs> that's all. It's no less love. I just, that's what it is. Because I also have a lot to do. You have a lot to do. I also have a lot to do. Um, we can do it we can do it and let's recognize um, whenever we embark on you know personal growth like this that we, we respect the difficulty of it you know because I think a lot of times you can hear something like this and you go, okay, well, let me try to do it. And then it's sort of like, oh, wow, I'm, I failed. <laughs> and then I failed again. And I actually failed more this time. And I think I actually made things worse. So, so any, you know, Rabbi Israel Salanter, the founder of the Muslim movement, was, you know, uh, credited as saying that to to change one personality trait, one midah, is harder to do than to learn the entire Talmud, all of Shas. It's a very important teaching because it gives you a frame of reference for, for the type of work that we hopefully are all trying to engage in or want to engage in. And then another thing that he said was that, that the loudest sound in the universe is made when you break one bad habit. Again, if you want to know the impact, the sound it makes in heaven, like the, the as we would say, the nachas ruach, the joy it gives God of, of, of changing one thing. Again, it seems like no one's even noticing and it's just an internal process and 
No one even cares. But if you heard the sound that it was making in heaven, you would understand that it was beyond huge. So just finally to return back to this idea of the, the lives of Sarah, chai Sarah, lives in the plural. Um, one of the most beautiful teachings I ever heard is in the name of the Zohar. And so, so we know that Sarah and Avraham uh, tried very hard to have children for many, many years. And Sarah didn't have uh, Yitzchak until she was 90 years old, a great miracle. And Abraham was 99, right? Or 100 at the time. So that, that's, that's an amazing thing. By the way, the, the name of their child, Yitzchak, tells the whole story of how, how amazing the birth of Yitzchak was. So in Hebrew, um, Yud, Yitzchak is spelled with a Yud. That's the number 10, because the binding of Isaac was the 10th test of Abraham. And then you have the letter Tzadi, Tzadi is 90. That's the age of Sarah when she had Yitzchak. Um, then you have Ches. That's the number eight, because he was the first person ever to be circumcised on the eighth day. And then you have the letter Kuf, which is 100, because Avraham was 100 years old when he had Yitzchak. So in, the, in, in Yitzchak, you have the entire story and all the circumstances around Yitzchak's birth. An amazing thing, but that's not what I wanted to tell you. This, that, this, is, this next teaching is from the Zohar, which is that we know that Avraham and Sarah had a lot of trouble trying to conceive. And um, so, so what the Zohar says is something amazing, that when they were together, all the, all the years that they were together, but they didn't conceive this child, Yitzchak, right? They were actually conceiving souls, and that these souls would be the souls of future converts. And for this reason, when someone converts to Judaism, one of the things that they they say, along with everyone else, is, um, you know, my God and God of my fathers, which includes mothers, by the way. So, 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 So literally, that does apply to them, because because their soul was conceived by Avraham and Sarah, and so they are very much a child of Avraham and Sarah. 